Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio because a meal is a terrible thing to waste, don't you think? <laughs> I welcome you to my kitchen. You've tuned in to the hippest, the hottest, and the coolest culinary conversation on the radio, if I may say myself, because we go way beyond mere eating and drinking on this show. I'm on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, emerging trends, top chefs, and culinary insight. And today's conversation is guaranteed to be delicious. Recipes and tips for marvelous meals are shared on this show. This hour, you'll gain ideas on how to eat well and live well. I'll tell you all about my favorite wines, recipes, authors, foods, restaurants, gadgets, and more every week. So you won't want to miss a show. And I do hope that you'll visit chefjamie.com to become a more confident cook. You can also find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. So please become a fan and a friend. And if you'd like to come cruise with me this August to Alaska to eat and drink and see glaciers and then repeat on board Oceana, the most beautiful and truly scrumptious cruise line there is, check out ChefJamie.com as I would love to see the world with you. As we kick off this show... Uh, We're starting it off right because I like to kick off with a tutorial, as you know, to make you the best cook you know. And I love banana bread. I don't know what it is about the winter months, even though, you know, we're trying to eat lean and clean. I dream of banana bread. It feels homey and comforting. And so this past week, I gave into my craving and I... I made what I thought was pretty close to the perfect loaf. And then I thought, well, I really have to share. There are some secrets to brilliant banana bread and one incredible magic trick. So keep listening. I also have my bonus recipe to share with you coming up. So here goes my best chef's tips on how to make brilliant banana bread. You start with very ripe, preferably speckled, almost black bananas. And if you happen to find that your bananas aren't as soft or sweet as you would like, here's my trick. You peel the bananas and you break them into chunks and you put them in a microwave safe bowl and you microwave the bananas in 30 second increments until they are warm throughout and then you cool them before you use them. So the heat compounds the sugar and actually assists in the aging process of a banana. And if you're using frozen bananas that you've collected because they were overripe and you were smart, you threw them in the freezer uh, with the hopes and the plan of making banana bread down the road, you do want to thaw them completely before using them. I put them in a strainer and I let all the condensation drip away because you do not want watery bananas. But I actually use that microwave trick. I take the thawed bananas and to get rid of any excess moisture, uh, and if I want to compound the sweetness as well, I'll do that 30 second increment, increment trick rather 
for perfectly ripe bananas that are ready for baking. Now, you can add depth of flavor and texture to your banana bread with the addition of so many delicious ingredients, right? Peanut butter lovers, you should add a few tablespoons of peanut butter to the unsalted butter when you're making a peanut butter banana bread. Or you can consider swirling marshmallow fluff into the batter uh, because that's an Elvis-style treat. I happen to add coffee for depth of flavor. Um, I really like coffee in lots of baked goods, especially those that have chocolate. And I gild the lily because I think banana bread is made better with chocolate chips. So I use dark chocolate, either chopped chunks or chips. Sometimes I'll throw in toasted pecans. Um, I always take the chocolate dust from the cutting board if I'm chopping chocolate off of, um, you know, a bar of chocolate per se. And I sprinkle the chocolate dust from chopping the chocolate on top for beauty's sake. Now, you most often see banana bread made in a loaf pan, right? But this is a really interesting fact about loaf pans. There is not one uniform sized loaf pan. Did you know that? Rather, there are a bunch of crazy sizes that are only slightly different from one another. And you can use a variety of different size pans. You just want to adjust the baking time accordingly. And you want to start testing a banana bread or any loaf cake. And this really applies to so many baked goods. About five minutes before you anticipate they will be done or when the recipe calls for. I use a cake tester. You can use a toothpick. The crumb on the toothpick should come out dry when you test so that you know it's cooked through. And then, of course, there is some carryover cooking, as in it continues to steam and cook as it comes out of the oven. So while you never want to take it out underdone, you do want a bit of crumb left on the skewer or the cake tester. I find that if the cake tester is too dry when you've tested the banana bread or any loaf cake for that matter and taken it out of the oven, the resulting bread is too dry and you need to adjust your time accordingly. Now, the gas company loves when I say this, but if you didn't know, the gas company will calibrate your oven for free. There's also a way to do it yourself. You buy an oven thermometer and either set it on the rack or hang it, uh, depending upon the thermometer you chose, and you set the oven, let's say, to 350 degrees, and then you wait until it preheats. Then you judge or test the number on the dial, the 350 degrees, to the temperature that your oven thermometer registers. And you will know whether your oven is baking hot or cold or just right. And the brilliance of this is that when it comes to baking, uh, it is an exact science. There is, you know, so much about science that goes into baking, but you will far more uh, be guaranteed beautiful baked goods if you test the oven temperature that you essentially know you are baking at. So, chef's tip. Okay. Ah, one more thing. When you go to take your first bite of the banana bread, it should not be piping hot. It will have a gummy texture. It takes time to cool and for the proteins in the flour to sort of settle and chillax. And so, while it's hard to wait, please do. Okay, now to the magic. 
my stellar recipe that I can't wait to share with you. It's the bonus recipe this week. Started this back in 2019. Gosh, that seems so long ago. And happy 2020 if we haven't shared New Year's celebration together. Uh, But the bonus recipe, you just email me for it, jamie at chefjamie.com, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. It's a recipe that I've never shared before. It's not posted on my website. And sometimes I like to throw in a bonus or two, like other things I love to do with overripe bananas or, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe there'll be a zucchini bread thrown in. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, zucchini and lemon zest, so good. Sorry, uh, back to the subject at hand. Uh, My bonus recipe for this week, what I call the best dark chocolate coffee banana bread ever, combines sour cream and baking powder to create a chemical reaction. Because when you combine the two ingredients, the acid in the sour cream activates the baking powder and you get an aerated mixture that when you add it to the batter, it elevates the bread to a whole new level. It's like this cake-like crumb in a banana bread with deep banana flavor and plenty of moisture and this wonderful consistency. It's magic. And the texture is best when you eat it just cool, baked that day, and preferably while standing up. So once again, email me, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com because it might be the best dark chocolate coffee banana bread you've ever had or made. And I can't wait to share it with you. All right. You won't want to touch your dial as well, because as I said, we have a full plate. He is Adam Platt. He is New York Magazine's truest glutton. He is a restaurant reviewer, having having given his whole life to the art of the restaurant and sharing his experiences. And he is here. And I am so over the moon. You do not want to miss the next conversation. Also coming up, we're keeping it simple. Yes, we're making one pot dinners that are totally drool worthy. Yasmin Farr is here. And before the end of the hour, Dr. Michael Greger is back and he's going to tell us how not to diet. I'm totally in for that. Stay tuned. There is lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. place for people who love to eat. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. When I say I have the best culinary thinkers on this show, I mean it. We have the best eaters too, by the way. And this gentleman, he holds the title. Adam Platt has been the chief restaurant critic and professional glutton in residence for New York Magazine since 2000. During the course of almost four decades in the magazine business, he has contributed to every elite publication as a writer and staffer from Newsweek to Esquire, Condé Nast Traveler to The New Yorker. 
He won the James Beard Foundation Journalism Award for Restaurant Reviews, and his much-awaited memoir has finally released. It is called The Book of Eating. It is a wonderfully hilarious, irreverent memoir of Adam's globe-trotting life lived meal to meal. It is filled with glorious stories of professional gluttony. And I will tell you, it is a must read for anyone who loves to cook or loves to eat. One of the most influential, respected food critics on the planet joins us today, and I am truly honored by his presence on this show. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Platt is here to dish, and I am very glad to have you, Mr. Platt. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jane. (laughs) Yes, of course, Adam. Uh, Okay, start at the beginning, if you would. As the son of a diplomat, you grew up experiencing great cuisine, and it it really molded your career. Uh, You know, it certainly molded my taste food and my love of food Hmm. and, you know, my appreciation for the intermingling of food and culture. Hmm. Uh, You know, when I was very young, uh, my father was what's called a China specialist, so he he studied Chinese, and in the early 60s, he took us to Taiwan, which is in those days, and I think still today, where... Uh, the government sends its people to study the Mandarin. It's a two-year course. They spend one year learning how to uh, talk and the other year learning how to write. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, we were. I was an impressionable. I had two brothers. One of them was alive at that point. The other one was born later in Hong Kong, uh, when, where we went from Taiwan. And, you know, com- coming from casserole, uh, you know, black and white, culinary nightmare of North America into this sort of great, uh, vivid, uh, brightly colored uh, foodscape that was Taiwan in those days was really, you know, it was sort of a revelation for all of us. Oh, of course. It had to be quite something. I love the story of you and your brothers fighting over Peking duck on the table. The life of the privileged, uh, gilded, uh, you know, But the Peking duck, you know, Taiwan in those days, and this is this may be a little too uh, too much sort of inside baseball, but in those days, Taiwan in the sixties, it was the place where all of the great uh, all of the, the refugees from the great capitalist profession who had who had populated China, which was now in the throes of the communist revolution, and they, all these guys get kicked out, and they ended up in Taiwan, and many of them were world class cooks. Hmm. Uh, the inventor of General Tso's chicken. Uh, of course. You had, great, you had great chefs from all these different provinces. So in these towns, and this is our, we lived in a city called Taichung, which was actually a fairly big size, it was really a small city, you could really experience the glories of, you know, Sichuan cuisine and uh, Shanghai cuisine, and Peking Dog, and a dish called Mongolian Barbecue, which was a sort of a kind of uh, northern barbecue, uh, you know, with lamb and these sort of fresh-baked sesame seed buns. Mm. And so it was really every kind of dumpling you could imagine. So really for sort of a fat, hungry little kid, <laughs> a fat, hungry little brother, uh, you know, it was, a bit of, it was sort of a paradise. It, yes, I can imagine. And I do believe that it uh, set you on a path to becoming a food critic. The Four Seasons Grill Room has a rich place in your heart. It does mine as well. On early trips to New York, uh, I remember going there. That was a, an extraordinary special occasion. 
and right. you you tell the story of uh, the experience there really standing out. Yeah. Well, I was uh, I, I wrote about many different things. Yes. Uh, before I was a, became a restaurant critic, and the first time I went to the the, the grill room. Uh, I was a you know a, a, a minor a writer at Newsweek magazine, which had their offices nearby. Mm. Um, and I used to go there. I also did a profile of, of Philip Johnson, who was a great architect who designed this space. And, it, and if, for those of you who don't know, it, it still exists actually because it's in landmark. It's just occupied by a different restaurant called the Grill. Right. And it's this beautiful cathedral, uh, as you know, this sort of cathedral monument. Yes. Oh, it's to, so gorgeous. Uh, to, to, to sort of modernist skyscraper, mid-20th century New York. And uh, in those days, uh, in those days you know, have, have passed, it was, it was where all of the, the, the suited, harumphing power brokers of the city hmm. sort of sat in their usual banquettes, you know, like, like walruses on a rock. I think was my description in the book. Yes. And, you know, it was very much like, like any great restaurant in any great city during various times. It was a reflection of the culture. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, not, 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 you know, in many, many ways, not a great reflection. I mean, that, that, that day of the martini lunch and, you know, the old male power brokers has passed away. But it was just a very sort of vivid celebratory place. Yes. Especially in its heyday. And you have written it and shared it and memorialized it beautifully. I have long followed your work. I love that you've raised two girls who love pizza. Uh, It seems just (laughs) so... So ironic to me. And if you're looking for a new friend, Adam, and a guinea pig, I'm raising my hand. All right, anytime when you come to town. I, I'm always looking for volunteers. I'm, Nobody wants to eat me with me anymore. Well, uh, all of my friends listening are, are now going to offer themselves up, I will, I will say. Um, I got, they are, I got a bunch of me- I got a bunch of mediocre restaurants I want to take you to. Oh, I can't wait. There are um, so many glorious stories of your four decades in the business. And for the food lover and the connoisseur, um, for the novice, uh, for anyone looking to better understand um, the life of one who eats to live and lives to eat, Uh, You have done it beautifully. Many years in the making, I know. We are grateful uh, that the Book of Eating has just released Adventures in Professional Gluttony from Adam Platt. It is available now. You can follow Adam at Platty Pants, of which I do. Adam, that's you. P-L-A-T-T-Y-P-A-N-T-S. The Life of a Professional Glutton in words. Really brilliant. Adam, thank you for coming on the show. I can't thank you enough, and I hope to see you in New York soon. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. Anytime. Please. Well, thank you. you. your friends. Raise your hand. We'll go out. Mediocre restaurant. We'll take me, take we'll me. See. We'll see what we're made of. I can't, can't wait. Uh, there, lot, thank you so much. There is lots more delicious conversation in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away.
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio eating well. We are a month into 2020. So how's your diet going? Well, if you're bored with copious amounts of protein or craving that cinnamon roll, you're in very good company. Here with a different approach to keep you on track and eating well is Dr. Michael Greger, physician, New York Times bestselling author, and an internationally recognized expert on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. You've heard him here on this show before when he shared his insight as to how not to die. His newest book, How Not to Diet, will help you discover the cutting-edge science behind long-term weight loss success. And I am delighted to welcome you back, Dr. Greger. Happy New Year to you. I'm so glad to be back. <laughs> thank Happy you. Happy New Year to you as well. Oh, thank you. I bet you're still on track with your eating plan for 2020. Ah, I've been <laughs> for 30 years. I've been on track. Yes, you have, no doubt. Uh, please, if you would, kick off this conversation by sharing your latest research on the leading causes, and we'd love some remedies, of obesity. Yeah, you know, with so much uh, nutritional noise and nonsense these days, I just wanted there to finally be an evidence-based diet book. And, you know, I cite literally thousands of studies digging up every possible tip, trick, tweak, technique proven to accelerate the loss of body fat, to give people every possible advantage, basically build the optimal weight loss solution from the ground up. And so you've taken what is a very timeless approach. It's very proactive. It's what I think is fascinating about your research is that it stands up to the new trends because like you alluded to, we are so bombarded with information. There is no doubt, but it's very actionable advice. And I have begun reading the manual. Um, Let's talk about it from a really simple approach. What are the key ingredients of a successful diet in your current opinion. Yeah, you know, yeah, we have, the diet industry just keeps feeding us this endless parade of quick-fix fads that always sell because they always fail. I mean, repeat customers, basically the whole business model, yeah, people just line up to be, you know, fooled again. But in terms of the optimal criteria for weight loss, uh, besides be, being, you know, safe, sustainable, nutritious, and healthy, which any diet should be, right. there are 17 criteria for both long- and short-term weight loss efficacy. Uh, so, for example, the optimal weight loss diet should be anti-inflammatory, clean, free from hormone-disrupting chemicals, full of fiber-rich foods to trap calories and flush them out of the body and kind of on down the list. It basically comes down to eating real food that grows out of the ground uh, that's centered around whole plant foods. Uh, It turns out that single healthiest diet also appears to be the most effective diet for weight loss. Okay, so let's talk about from the ground. Do you eat solely plant-based? Oh, well, that is the ideal on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't matter what you eat on birthdays, holidays, special occasions, but, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we really should try to eat healthy. And the best available balance of evidence suggests the healthiest diet is one that minimizes the intake of meat, eggs, dairy, and processed junk and maximizes the intake of fruits and vegetables and legumes, your beans, peas, chickpeas, and lentils, whole grains, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs and spices, basically real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthiest choices. Right. And when it comes to protein, what are our best options? Anyone who doesn't know how to get enough protein on a plant-based diet doesn't know beans. 
There we go. Okay, so you're big on beans. If if I don't know, I'll tell you. And I, I'm a meat eater and a chef by trade, as you know. And I, I live to eat. I don't know as much as I love my meatless Monday and I feel fabulous on a vegetarian dinner. I don't know that I can give up protein entirely. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, if there was one animal protein to eat, what would it be? Oh, so uh, without a doubt, it'd be game. So okay. wild game. So elk, moose, these are extremely low fat. Um, uh, so you venison, basically. Um, uh, so there was a series of studies done in Australia where they compared um, wild-caught meat, which is kangaroo meat there, kind of the venison of Australia, right. compared to store-bought meat, found significantly less inflammation in the hours after eating the kangaroo versus the store-bought meat. Now, you could argue, look, why have any inflammation at all and eat whole plant foods and have you know, an anti-inflammatory effect? Fine, but certainly step in the right direction um, to go from uh, kind of commercialized meat to uh, wild game as long as you make sure they're not caught with uh, lead-containing uh, ammunition. Oh, that's terrific. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about um, anti-inflammatory. Are there a couple things we can do off the top of your head just to encourage the anti-inflammatory approach to our bodies? It's a couple things, small things that we can add to our day today as a starting point. Yeah, so, um, uh, so uh, by feeding our microbiome, um, prebiotics, which is fiber and resistant starch, like whole grains, like legumes, um, we feed them. They feed us right back with what are called short-chain fatty acids, which are absorbed from our colon, circulate throughout our bodies, and have an anti-inflammatory effect. Now, I mean, how not to die? I talked about turmeric, some anti-inflammatory spices yes. like ginger that can be added uh, to one's diet. And then, again, cutting down saturated fat and trans fat, which have a pro-inflammatory effect on the body. Yeah, we've been talking about turmeric and ginger and a combination of spices on this show over the past few weeks, oh, too. Great. Yeah, how great. combining those spices gives you an even better boost. So my morning smoothie has turmeric and ginger in it now. And mm. if if it betters me, I, I'm all for it, of course. A turmeric tea, we know. Uh, go back for a second and define microbiome, please, so that we can understand it uh, in layman's terms. Yeah, microbiome are good gut bacteria, the trillions of bacteria that live in our gut. Um, uh, we used to just think that it was important for something like inflammatory bowel or bowel regularity. But now we know the critical role that these, uh, co- these metabolites, these compounds that are good bacteria make when we eat fiber the, uh, for our immune function, uh, not only in terms of inflammation, but um, improving even mental health. And we can prove this by uh, what are uh, called uh, fecal transplant studies, where you essentially kind of transfer one person's microbiome to another person. And so a skinny person gets an obese person's microbiome. And even though they eat the same foods, they start gaining weight. Um, and so mm-hmm. that's why we need to cultivate a slimming microbiome. And the way we do that is we feed our, our fiber-feeding bacteria. And the only way to do that is really whole plant foods. Okay, so we've talked whole plant microbiome. Can you talk calorie density? That's a term that I learned from reading how not to diet. We're counting calories. We're counting steps. We're counting, we're counting so much today. What does calorie density mean to you? So calorie density is the amount of calories per given amount of food, per mouthful, per stomachful, per cup, per pound. Um, and one can use something called negative calorie preloading, which just means starting out a meal with fruits, vegetables, soup, salad, or simply a tall glass of water, basically anything with less than 100 calories per cup. So, uh, for example, eating a large apple before a meal is so filling that people go on to eat about 300 calories less food. So 
100 calories in, 300 calories out. An apple eaten before a meal effectively has negative 200 calories. That's amazing. I have to tell you, I feel like when I talk to you, Dr. Gregor, I'm, I'm doing something right. I eat for a living, but I have trained myself to wake up in the morning and drink a full glass of water. Oh, I try fantastic. to do it. Yes, I try to do it before a meal too. It is, it is quite uh, spectacular to consider that when I think of in years past, how full my plate was and how much I used to eat and what I can eat today. And mind you, I do still indulge even outside of the birthdays and celebrations, but much less satisfies me. And I, I do wonder if it is that, that filling, satiating concept that you just spoke about. Yeah, men and women randomized to drink two cups of water before lunch and dinner. Um, uh, lost weight 44% faster than those that uh, continue without the water. So, I mean, it's been proven in randomized control trials to accelerate weight loss. Wow. But, you know, why don't you ever hear about this? Who's going to make money telling people to drink tap water? I am um, often on nutritionfacts.org because I very much believe in what you do. And I'd love for you to talk about what's new there. I'd also like to mention that all of the profits from your lecture fees and the books, uh, royalties and otherwise, also from the website, go to charity. And that I think that makes you an extraordinarily reputable, credible source of science-based nutrition. So thank you. Uh, what is new on nutritionfacts.org, your creation? Yeah, it's a free nonprofit science-based public service providing daily updates and the latest in nutrition research via these bite-sized videos. We have literally thousands of videos up there on every possible health topic. We new videos and articles nearly uploaded nearly every day. It's completely free. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorships, strictly non-commercial, not selling anything. Just put it up as a public service, kind of labor of love um, at nutritionfacts.org. Yeah, you're doing phenomenal work, and we thank you for the insight. Congratulations on the new book as it uh, heads to New York Times bestseller. Dr. Gregor, you have an open invitation here anytime. I thank you for sharing your passion and for um, all of the insight. Uh, thank you so much. Looking forward to coming back. Well, thank you again. How Not to Diet will give you uh, really fascinating science-based nutritional information on how to lose weight in sustainable ways that enhance health, uh, reduce chronic illness, and more. It is uh, an encyclopedic tapestry of very important and healthful information for human nutrition. And I think it's a great read. Dr. Michael Greger, G-R-E-G-E-R, nutritionfacts.org. More to keep you living well, eating well, and to feed your soul right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I like to say on this show that if you love to cook or love to eat, then you're definitely in the right place. But like you, I don't always have time to create an inventive meal as much as I love to cook. Enter Yasmin Farr. 
Yasmin spent years as an undercover inspector for Forbes Travel Guide, living in New York, L.A., and London, reviewing hotels and restaurants around the world so she knows good food. She's also an avid cook with a master's in food studies, and she created a column, a one-pot series for Serious Eats. Her work has also appeared in Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, The Kitchen, and more. So after a long day at work, heading home to cook a fussy, complicated meal is the last thing any of us want to do. And so we're keeping it simple. Yasmin's first cookbook just released is of that name. A quick, wonderful, easy collection of drool-worthy one-pot dinners that you can whip up in the time it takes to have a glass of wine or two, she says. Let's be honest. (laughs) Yasmin Farr is here to dish on dinner. I'm glad to have you, Yasmin. Welcome and congratulations on the release of Keeping It Simple. It's fabulous. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's so nice to have it out in the world and have people cooking from it. Yeah, it's exciting. I love that you say that um, it's supposed to get splattered on and dirty and bent and right this is a a cookbook that you really want people to use exactly I think it's the biggest compliment to cookbook author to have someone spill on their pages earmark them um and I really want this to be a book that like you said people cook from use every day just to make their lives easier and you are about easy. I love that you're about simple dishes, but they're not dumbed down. They are, I think, very much lifted up. You love healthy ingredients, um, but there's some indulgence in it. Um, and you're all about the glass of wine, which means you and I can yeah. definitely be friends. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Um, and I learned from reading through your pages. So I want to dig deep and, and talk food with you. Um, you have a passion for some very specific ingredients. In fact, Mm -hmm. you have a thing for miso and ghee. If I'm not mistaken, I read the book cover to cover. Yeah, no, I love miso and ghee. It's like such an intoxicating, wonderful aroma. Um, it's basically a compound butter, but I use ghee instead of butter and so great melted. It smells incredible. Um, and in the book I use it for a miso ghee chicken. So we basically put it on top of the skin and underneath it, just, Infuse the chicken with delicious flavor and it smells incredible. Um, and the skin gets really crispy too. Mm. That's great. Is there a ratio you mix standard, uh, you know, a miso and ghee that you use for just about everything? Because it is, it's a compound butter. It's, it's miso and butter essentially. Um, and I would think that's like a two ingredient wonder in your kitchen now. Yeah, I know. I um, usually do about like one to one and a half teaspoons ghee, uh, miso to ghee. But I use it all the time. Like, I'll even do it on soba noodles with spinach kind of wilted in and topped with scallions and sesame seeds. And it's like a really easy, flavorful weeknight dinner for when I really don't want to cook. Oh, that sounds really good. Okay, one and a half teaspoons of miso paste to a tablespoon Mm -hmm. of ghee at room temperature. Do you have a specific miso paste you buy? I make um, a miso cod. After the, you know, yeah, Mm. after the great miso cod that we all love. And um, I buy white miso. So white miso paste. That's my go-to. It's always in the fridge. It lasts forever. Do you have a preference? No, I use white miso as well. I think it's um, lighter and it's really good for like these kinds of things as well, like salad dressing. Um, And sometimes you can find like a low salt version, which is nice people who are sensitive to salt. You're putting miso in in your salad dressings? Oh my God, yes. If you ever do it with miso, Dijon mustard, um, lemon, and olive oil, it is so good. Oh, my God. I, 
I have to get oh, up from my. I have to get yeah. up from the radio <laughs> s- chair from this studio and go and make it. Okay, miso paste, lemon yep. juice, um, Dijon mustard, and olive oil. Dijon mustard and olive oil. That's the new yeah. go-to vinaigrette. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's like so. I mean, packed with so much flavor. You know, all these greens like do the work for you. Yes, and it's so, got it's so much umami. That miso yeah. paste, I think, makes everything taste good. Oh, I can't wait to make that. All right, as long yeah, as we're I, on ingredients, mm-hmm. uh, talk Parmesan rinds. I saw them strewn throughout the book. I savor a Parmesan rind. In fact, I buy containers of the rinds now at my favorite cheese shop. Yeah, because they're saving them and everyone seems to want to use them because they boost flavor. But what do you use them for? Yeah, um, so I do the same thing. Whenever I like whittle it down or if I didn't, you know, wrap it properly and it gets dried up, I put them in like tomato sauces um, and soups and stews. And it's such a great way, like you were saying, to um, add a ton of flavor, like it kind of melts and just slowly um, seasons the dish. So it's really great. It like makes an intense flavor without really doing anything again. The book is uh, is really from the heart. I will tell you, congratulations oh. to you. And it's very much the way I cook too. So uh, we are now connected and I celebrate yeah. you. Congratulations on the release of Keeping It Simple. Uh, and thank you for sharing your passion here on the radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was so a fun. pleasure. Yasmin Farr shares anecdotes and musings on cooking and life and it's witty and lovely and these are recipes that you will make night after night there's a whole lot of inspiration in it it's a beautiful collection in the new cookbook release called keeping it simple by yasmin far f-a-h-r you can follow at yasmin far and create easy weeknight one pot recipes with flair I'll be cooking from the book. I'm sure you will be too. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. And I'm so glad you joined me at the table. I hope that you will tune in every weekend and allow me to feed your soul because there is lots more fabulous food in your radio promised. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary inspiration. It's my five-ingredient coconut curry cod recipe. And if you've seen fresh cod at the fishmonger or your grocer lately, you should be cooking it. It is oily and delicious. And this recipe is full of heat and coconut goodness. And it just has a few ingredients. You can use any curry paste that you like, red, yellow, or green. The yellow, the most mellow. The red, uh, with a bit of heat. And the green, the hottest. Uh, But I love how the flavors combine. It is simply luscious, this recipe, and super fast. And again, with just five ingredients, I hope that you will make it your own. I will post it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please become a fan and a friend at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you're looking for my dark chocolate coffee banana bread, the best ever. It's the bonus recipe of this week. And I dished about it at the beginning of the show. I'd love to share it with you. Just email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. I will meet you here next weekend. And until then, I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.